Welcome to Dice and Suffering, home of more chaos than we have dice. And we have a lot of dice. Greetings, mortals. I bid you welcome to Dice and Suffering. I'm sat recording this on the 1st of January 2023, so Happy New Year. Hope any resolutions you come up with are good ones. I have not come up with any because I don't tend to commit to them and, you know, I like to set myself goals I can achieve and I have a feeling most of my New Year's stuff I never really achieve. Because you always set yourself such grand goals when a year begins. But anyway, that's that's not the point. This isn't a tabletop episode. This is more just a talking episode. I mentioned on Twitter a while ago that I wanted to explain a bit more to you as my audience about why my D&D campaign Into the Waste ended prematurely. Well, like it ended at, it ended at the end of arc 2 when I had like five arcs planned. And obviously, I owe you all some form of explanation. And I mean, my players are probably listening to this as well, so hello. <laughs> Here's some more elaboration than what I occasionally talk about. So I'm gonna call- I'm calling any series like this where I'm just gonna talk, be it about running tabletop stuff, because obviously I'm a GM of multiple hats, as it were. You'll notice I said GM, not DM. To those not as familiar in tabletop games, DM was the term coined for people running Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeon Master, hence it's in the name. GM is just Games Master. And since, obviously, I run Blades in the Dark, for those of you who've listened to that on here, thank you. The views on it have been really, really encouraging. The first arc was called The Black Lotus Gambit, and the second arc, which is ongoing, We find time in our schedule for it, after all, is called The Fall of the First Sword and follows an assassination plot, which is going well. (laughs) But this is dice and mutterings, I've called it, because I'm, I'm a killer for apparently a rhyming name or rhyming, rhyming titles for series. I don't know. There's a correct term for it and I'll remember it later. I won't edit it in because I won't remember it until like after I've hit upload. Because we all have things like that in our brain. We wake up at 3am and just go, that's the word I was looking for. And if you have a partner, or in my case, if you have cats, they look at you and go, what? (laughs) What are you doing? Stop it. But anyways, it is just me. Maybe in future I'll have people on here just to chat. Who knows? If you're interested in it, do let me know. I'm at our mind games on Twitter for anything related to this. But hey, I mean, I get notifications whether you whether you leave a comment on the site, themindgame.org, or if you send me a GM. Not send me a GM, Caitlin, learn to speak. One of these days I'll be able to use words correctly. It won't be now, and it won't be for like another decade, but hey. No, um, this will be very rambly. This is very much what it's like to be inside my head 90% of the time. And the cats are immediately causing chaos. Cats, stop it. For those curious, I have two cats. Loki, who's a bigger boy, who likes to play fetch and have his tummy rubbed, and Lark, who's a bit more of a regular cat. But he has very sleek fur and he likes to curl up. I like I sit cross-legged, he likes to curl up, like when I sit cross-legged in that gap. And just purr away to himself. He's currently drinking my water. Thanks, cat. I feel very loved. <laughs> Whenever you hear me complaining about cats rubbing against the microphone or cat butt or things in the Dungeons and Junkies episodes, they're why. I love them dearly, but as cat owners all know, there's, you know, you can love something but still not want its ass planted in your face. Yes, I'm talking to you. Yes. <laughs> Just looked at me and walked behind my desktop. 
Sigh. No. I wanted to talk a bit about Into the Waste. Because this was... It's not my first D&D campaign I've run. I've... Before I met the D&J gang, as it were, I've been running for a good few years before then. During my time at university and during my time in sixth form, which, for those of you not from the UK, is the final two years of secondary school, or high school, or whatever your equivalent is. Basically, 17 and 18, age-wise. Like, I've been running mostly one-shots and then the occasional long, longer-form campaign up until I met the D&J crew. In which I gave Matt a pen and a cue, and now we're here, <laughs> several years later. Pro tip, give people pens, I guess. But Dyson Suffering grew out of the fact that I was... I enjoyed publishing this, and I enjoyed seeing how other people took to my storytelling. Because I've always been a writer, I've always been a creative writer. And I'm sure if you dig around somewhere, you'll probably find the various stories I've written and posted online back in my days where I wrote things like fanfiction, because we all had times like that. <laughs> I don't care to remember it, but I did. Like, I've done a lot of writing, so running games with complex stories in the background and world building has always kind of been my jam. I woke up and I chose storytelling and angst, apparently. When it when the world created me, it was like, mm, yes, let us, let us give it more angst. But hey, I'll take it. I'll take it and run. Into the Waste was... For those of you, you're welcome to go listen to it. The first two arcs and the two... And the two... Solo bits. The Sanfir arc with Kerry's character, San which is about three episodes long, and the spin-off, not really spin-off, the kind of short story bit of having Alex and Matt's character go down memory lane, as it were, and Chad's character go absolutely insane. Yeah, that was a weird one. <laughs> Great fun to run, but it was just uh, me sitting there on, like, I think it was a Sunday. I'm just sat in my flat and just listening to Chad go absolutely ballistic. Lovely guy. I love him to pieces. He's a great friend, but also what the hell? <laughs> this is your life. But Into the Waste is... I described it as more of a psychological campaign than a traditional D&D campaign. If you look at all of the... Eh, eh, words. If you look at all the Dungeons and Junkies campaigns that are published versus that are upcoming because obviously when one campaign starts people have other ideas and we start new and hey who knows when you're listening to this maybe we'll all be on our 50th campaign by the time this <laughs> people listen to this who knows we all have different approaches to storytelling and my world in comparison to the others except maybe Carrie Carrie's world Carrie and I have similar kind of styles when it comes to everything is not okay and the world is suffering and you kind of just have to accept that. Which I love. I went for more corruption and influence and darkness. My focus was very much on how our characters impacted the world around them. Because actions have consequences. And that's something I've always been a big fan of in tabletop games. And in anything I've written. It's kind of... It is why I enjoy running Blades, because consequences for actions are a bit more of a solid entity. Like, in in Dungeons & Dragons, you can essentially break your... Break every bone in your body. Have, like... Suffer from, like, cardiac arrest. And as long as you have a wizard around with a bunch of healing slots, you'll be fine by the next day. And that's always a bit off for me. Or like, you can... For those of you who listen to Oxventure, you can 
literally mulch a bunch of orphans and not immediately be arrested <laughs> or shot for your crimes. So my world has always been, my worlds are always going to be a little bit more, a little less lenient with, with letting people get away with things that, you know, would normally be considered a very bad thing to do and get you arrested. And I think you can see that. Into the Waste was, and is, essentially a game of 4D chess I played with myself. Because I built this world. I built these islands, and I created... Like, it's called Into the Waste because there is a region within the world called The Waste. It used to just be kind of a desert. Kind of like... Kind of like the Gobi Desert. That's more what it used to be like. And it was livable. There were communities that lived there and survived in the harsher conditions, much like there are communities that can live in freezing conditions and in torrential rain and constant monsoons and all of that. It's. But by the time the campaign started, it had become the waste because of corruption. And I'd always hinted at this big event causing the corruption and the whole point was that the mountain range built around it was was erected to prevent that corruption from leaking out further the most powerful mages at the time had to work together to build this barrier to prevent that corruption from leaking out further because i describe the corruption in the waste much like What's the easiest way to say it? You know that grey goo? There was like, I don't know how many people will recognise what I'm talking about, but there was like a game when I was very, when I was younger. And I think people have seen it a lot more with like Agario and that, where it's just, it keeps eating things smaller than it and it gets bigger and bigger. And it is based off a type of bacteria, I believe. Can't remember off the top of my head. Feel free to look it up. I'm sure there's lots of horrifying science documentaries about types of bacteria that will slowly consume the earth. Fun nighttime watch, I guess. Enjoy the nightmares. But I that's how I describe the corruption, because it will just keep eating away at the land and at the people and at the life there. Because that's what it does. It latches on at a cellular level. Such that it's it sucks the life so much so that nothing can grow there anymore. Like, you can have the perfect conditions. You can have the perfect weather and all the minerals and things you want. But there is just something... I always treat it like it's essentially eaten the mitochondria of the cell of every living thing in its path. Now, the ongoing meme for anyone who's ever done biology is that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. Without that power to fuel it, to assist it, it's inert. It's not helpful. It won't react. And that's the corruption. And I think with Into the Waste, it was about how people can be as corrupting as something as unknowable as that. It is about ripple effects and butterfly effects and... I mean, there's so many games about butterfly effect. And honestly, if you look into the scientific theory around it and then you go into multiple universes and branching probability and it's a whole kettle of fish. But... I wanted to put people in a world that was unfair, that was cruel, and there was a very high chance that they would all suffer and they would all die. That was very much on the cards, and I don't think, or at least they didn't seem to realise till later on that their actions had consequences. Very much so. You can kind of see the difference between Arc 1 and Arc 2, where I'm essentially going, Oh my god, you've killed so many people! <laughs> and they kind of go, Oh, cool.
cool. And I'm like, no, not cool. There are a lot of people who are dead. Okay. Oh, hey. It's interesting, because if I look back on Into the Waste, I'm sad it ended when it did, but I have good reasons for why. I'll explain some of them now before we kind of talk more about plot stuff. One of the main reasons why Into the Waste ended after Arc 2, because it didn't actually, that wasn't the last thing we filmed. We recorded like that big fight with Cormac and San and in the cathedral. I think it's called For Whom the Bell Tolls or something similar to that. That It's like episode 19 or something. It's We got a long way into it. That wasn't the last episode recorded with the group. Obviously, we had the solo bits and we had like the in-between arcs, but we actually recorded a few episodes of arc three, which at the time, Chad was on paternity leave, looking after his newborn daughter. And so we'd arranged... Like, we'd planned it such that, and Chad had given me an idea such that we'd run off with that to be happening at the same time. So eventually Charlemagne could be brought back in, and it's not like there'd be, month, there'd be months and months of time gaps I'd have to suddenly resolve. But we were running with Chad. Chad was away, and Kerry, spoiler alert, was playing a new character. Because San her original character obviously had died and we had the whole solo arc of resurrection and you know character progression some great fucking phenomenal roleplay on Carrie's end between San and his father who he's had a complex relationship with to say the least like that three episode arc is probably some of the best roleplay of the whole campaign so, you know, my, my players are talented and they should appreciate themselves more. If you're listening, I, I'm looking at you. <laughs> so I had a new character and then we had Dakota and Shambles, who've been there since the beginning. Matt and Alex. And obviously they were both kind of traumatised because they'd just seen, they'd just lost a friend and one of their other friends had basically left a note saying, yeah, I'm off to kill a god, bye. And vanished into the night. So they were... They were in a difficult place. Which did lead to some like personality shifts. Because trauma affects everyone differently. Which was difficult for us all to deal with. Especially because at one point Shambles kind of snapped. And we were all just kind of there going... Jesus Christ, calm down. But... The thing is, when you tell a story, especially one that's as complex as some of the stories I like to tell, is you forget one key thing when you're building it. And it's that your characters will change. Because they are not under your control. They aren't following a direct story arc that you've written for them. The thing with running any tabletop game is that these stories aren't entirely under your control. You need to be sure and you need to understand that your players have just an equal part in this as you do. They will talk and they will decide how something will impact them. It's whether you think they'll be sad about hearing about an important NPC's death or whether they'll go for vengeance. Whether they'll retreat in on themselves, whether they just won't care at all. It is collaborative storytelling. That is what tabletop RPGs are. They are collaborative storytelling because you can build a world. You build a world and this massive sandbox for people to play with. But it is entirely up to your players how they choose to engage with it. And you have to accept that they aren't always going to do what you want. I mean, a good example of that is the episode called Morag's Cudgel. Where you can probably hear in it, I slowly lose my mind partly, but also the fact that I have signposted about, I signposted about five different plot threads that could be useful for the gang to follow. And none of them were followed and the mayor ended up dying, which was really funny 
but also an entire clusterfuck. And it's that's part of it. It's I didn't know my players were were essentially going to bypass the entire plot and any like additional bones I threw their way in an attempt to get things remotely on track. And we ended up skipping to skipping ahead to the San and Cormac in the city of Aenor plot stuff that we needed to get to eventually. Like, there was probably another two episodes at least worth of content they could have gotten in Shambles' hometown. Because there, there, there was a lot there that they could have explored. There were potential solutions for Dakota, there was information for San, there was history. And actual NPCs who knew and had grown up with Shambles. And, you know, random people for Charlemagne to terrorise. <laughs> All of this. There were... As a DM, you give them all these things, you give them opportunities. And if they take them, that's brilliant and you can run with them, but sometimes they don't. And I think what I struggled with and why Into the Way stopped when it did was because the characters had gotten to a point where why would they care? And it's a question I think a lot of DMs have to realise is that you can follow a plot and you can follow an idea and you can set them all off on this quest. But depending on what character progression they make and what emotional developments you put in their way, at what point will that quest no longer matter to them? At what point does it become the player's choice to make the character stay versus what would the character actually do? And I think that's something that I realised. And I know my players would have been happy to keep going. They, like, they've expressed that they were sad that it came to an end, but they understood that it was my decision. And it's, I didn't want my players to play their characters, but be untrue to them, unfaithful to the characters they'd spent so long building and telling me about and creating all this wonderful backstory and engagement and wonderful roleplay moments, I didn't want them... I didn't want them to be entirely reliant on where I led them. Because... Cat. I'm trying to have a moment. Come in. Loki has come to make himself known in this episode. Hello, Loki. Do you have something to say to the people at home? No. No. What? <laughs> He's just sat on my lap, just like, love me. I do love you. Yes, I do. And you have a perfectly nice new bed that my mum got you for Christmas. And what are you doing? You're eating cardboard. This is cat owner's life, everybody. But no, um... Fuck, where was I before I got distracted by a cat? Yeah, I don't want... I didn't want my players to act... To act differently. Just because it was where I wanted the story to go. There's a difference between telling a story together and... Essentially telling a story and forcing them to read from a script. And as a... As a games master of any of the tabletop games you may enjoy, whether it's the traditional Dungeons and Dragons or whether you play things like Tales from the Loop or Alien or the smaller ones, it's... When you tell a story and when you commit to telling a story with people, sometimes you have to stop it before you're ready. And... At that point, San had gotten his family back. He he had come back from the dead. He'd survived an onslaught. He understood some of how... Part of what had been going on with his father this whole time. And he had a way home to his wife and son that he hadn't... That's what he'd been looking for the whole campaign. He was a good man who wanted his wife and his son to be safe and happy. And apart from 
like as a debt and as a repayment to those who travelled with him, and because he's a good man who'd help his friends, I don't see why he would go and continue with all of this. That's not his priority. Charlemagne had shifted more towards doing what was necessary. His understanding of everything, and because everything was so shit, especially for him, it was about starting anew, getting everything... Basically, he wanted to become a god and wipe the earth clean, and then start anew because with him in charge instead. You know, that's not a horrifying concept at all. But why would he want to go and listen to politics rather than go... Or why would he want to help the resistance when he can, you know, go trap a god in the desert and kill lots of people? I guess. And Shambles and Dakota, in the end, were both very sheltered characters growing up because of their backstories. Which meant when it came to... Arc 3's plan, which was to try and understand a bit more of what was going on in the city of Myrinth and of this so-called big bad guy Vorer, who who's basically been puppeteering the king this entire time. To understand his influence and to try and assist the resistance. Dakota and Shambles didn't really have the upbringing or the social skills to navigate that labyrinth. If the other two had been with them, maybe. But honestly, there was a very high likelihood of one or both of them kicking down the door to the throne room, yelling, I hate you, and then fireballing the king or something. That probably would have happened. (laughs) And I probably would have resorted to alcohol, because... There we go. And it's... In order to understand what my endgame was, you needed to understand Vorer's impact to every level. Which meant you needed to understand the political side as well, and... I just... I eventually realised that... I loved the characters my players had built. But who they had become was no longer suitable for the world I had. And for the story I had planned. So instead of forcing them into something or forcing myself to run a story I wasn't going to be happy with, I chose to end Into the Waste. The other reason, really, was that I wasn't happy running it by that point. Now, anyone who follows me and my work will know that themindgame.org is where I write articles about video games and mental health and kind of their links. And I mean, all my characters that I play in Dungeons & Junkies have some sort of... They inherit a part of my personality. Damien is basically what I would be if I didn't have a moral compass. (laughs) It's one of those things. Some characters inherit my loyalty, some inherit my intelligence, some inherit my independence, my kindness, creativity, any of it. Yes, hello, Loki. They, you give yourself in the art of storytelling, stop eating my pen. You give a bit of yourself to your characters because it makes it easier to embody them and you put so much into a world you create that it's often hard to deal with when things don't go cat. When things don't go cat. Wow, Caitlin. Well, there's eloquence for you. It can be hard when things don't go to plan. And... The problem with telling a complex story and with having so many threads that could be pulled on and so much that could be unraveled is that when players miss it, because you can signpost all you want, but sometimes they just don't see it, even when you're beating them over the head with it. They just miss it. And signposting can only do so much. If your players choose not to engage with what 
is in front of them, if they have other plans, if they have other interactions they want to do, if they want to just fireball a random guy named Josh. Yes, I'm still bitter about how that fight went. (laughs) Then that's up to them, and that's kind of what you have to accept. But for me, it was I wanted to tell this story, and every time a lot was missed, every time people didn't seek things out or explore threads I'd given them, it kind of, it weighs on you because you wonder whether it's because people aren't invested, people don't care, people just don't see it. Maybe you're not doing a good job. And for someone like me with low self-esteem, depression, anxiety, PTS, you know, the whole fun shebang that is my life, it builds on you and it grates slowly away at your confidence as a DM. And my players are wonderful. And after every session we play of anyone's campaign, we're all positives and we're all excited to see what comes next. And we're all just kind of... We are... We're good. We're good to each other. But there's only so much positivity people can say versus just the screaming gremlins that form mental health issues. People can say I'm good at something all they want. If I'm having a bad day, my brain doesn't care. They think you're lying. And eventually it kind of got to a point where I knew I wasn't going to get to tell a story I'd be happy with. And when you're not happy with what you do, it becomes so much harder to work on it. And then you lose motivation. Then you lose confidence. Then you don't want to edit past episodes and upload them. You don't want to plan for new sessions. You aren't excited. Your roleplay suffers because of it, your story suffers because of it, and then your self-esteem suffers because of it. It's a negative cycle. And Into the Waste, as much as it is a dark story, I enjoyed it. And I think the fact that I recognised what it had become to me, that when we were doing that third arc first few sessions... And I was seeing where this was going to go. I knew that if I followed this path, I would hate what I had written. And I didn't want to ruin all the work we'd put into the first two story arcs. And all those moments and those character developments. I didn't want to taint that with something that I knew I wouldn't be proud of. And if you're not proud of it, then I wouldn't want to upload it. And it would just sit on my hard drive, taunting me. So I kind of made the decision, partly because the story didn't suit who my characters were anymore. And partly because the story wouldn't make me happy. I wouldn't be content with it. And I'd rather start anew with something that really excites me. And interests me, which is what my new campaign Bloodbound has been doing. As I've been doing all the world building for it. Seriously, I've got like 20 pages in a, in a Google Doc and maps and everything. Then to drag on something that probably should have ended where it did. And hey, maybe those characters will come back in future. Maybe they'll conquer the planet. Who knows? But in the moment, it's... I'll always regret what could have been with Into the Waste. But I won't regret what came out of it. And even though it wasn't my first campaign or anything, it's still something I can look back on and go, yeah, I did that. I'm proud of that. And I'm also proud of the fact that I made that choice for my own mental health. I didn't force myself to continue to the point of driving myself into burnout and into anxiety and everything. I made the choice that inherently will be beneficial for my mental health in the long run. And, you know, I don't always make those choices. I'm sure if I had a therapist, they'd be very proud of me. (laughs) Anyway. 
I wanted to mention a few fun little story tidbits that we never really got to. And, like, if you listen to the Christmas Crackers on Visionaries Global Media, there's... We do a thing every every year, or every six months or so, where we kind of ask each other questions about ongoing campaigns and what we like and what we don't like and our favourite NPCs and all that. One of them released was asking about my stuff. And we did talk a bit about Into the Waste and kind of answering questions now that the campaign is suspended. Because, you know, we can actually talk spoilers now. So there's a few on there, but I'm going to go into some detail here as well. Because, hey, this is my my channel. (laughs) This is my podcast. I can do what I want. Take that, jerk. I don't know who I'm calling a jerk since I'm talking to myself in an office in my flat with two cats. And one of them is having a nap and the other one's staring at me like I have chicken. I don't have any chicken. You can't have it if I did. It would probably be my dinner. This is my life. Happy New Year. (laughs) But, for example, a plot thread we never actually got to, um, which was mentioned in the Christmas Cracker, the Mirror Man. Now, those of you who have listened to the campaign, you'll know the Mirror Man as this entity that appeared in some kind of void with floating islands and weird ice cubes, weird like icicles forming. And it was he was as tall as like a three-story building with pits for eyes. And the story the mirror man came from kind of he was kind of the mix of the story of Narcissus from Greek mythology. The man who stared into a lake so much and loved his own reflection so much that he died by the lake and flowers Narcissus flowers which is why they have that name, sprung up in its place, because he fell in love with his own reflection. It was partly from that and partly from various, like, SCP horror stories and creepypasts and things I'd read when I was younger. The idea of the Mirror Man came from a random thought I had when I looked... I looked in the mirror when I was brushing my hair one morning, and it was the idea that... In some, in some cultures, especially back in medieval times, people believed that if you, for example, wolves, like, uh, words, people believed that your reflection, if you looked at your reflection for too long, you'd lose a bit of your soul to the devil. Kind of the sin of pride and all that. And I wondered what would happen is if you kept losing bits of yourself, to some entity in a mirror, in a reflection. What that entity could then do with those pieces of you. Would it try and mimic you? Would it replace you? Would it control you and leave you screaming as a passenger in your own head? Would it demand servitude? And I ended up building this folktale, essentially, that evolved into a religion into a deity that demanded tribute from its followers and at roughly at the beginning of arc 2 it was kind of revealed that the tribute that the mirror man took from his followers for example in sanctity's case when their patron got absorbed, killed. Their patron was killed by the Mirror Man and he took over their pledge. In order to swear loyalty to the Mirror Man, you have to rip out one of your teeth with your own hands, without like painkillers or magic or anything. It is sheerly a brute force contribution to him as a mark of loyalty. And, you know, that's fucked up as it is. And, you know, I'm sure people, a lot of, I'm sure a therapist would have a lot to say about me going, hmm, yes, rip out one of your teeth, that's fine. But the mirror man demands tribute like that. And in the very end of things, the mirror man would have been the final boss of the campaign. Because 
one of the notes that the characters the characters like Sam definitely focused more in on and did kind of look into whilst others ignored it was the fact that the gods in this world have been slowly dying there used to be 12 used to be kind of a council of 12 that created the realm and each ruled over a separate part of it for example the the cast the party met Donio right at the beginning he helped spring them from jail in the first place and Donio was the god of time then you had split personalities and the goddess of hope Pontath you never really met the others and that's because they all died the mirror man essentially wished himself into being really there's there's a phrase there's a there's an old understanding people have that when you play a part for so long you start to believe it yourself like if you tell a lie about something so much eventually you will start to believe it as the truth as well it's where a lot of conspiracy theories come from and the mirror man essentially took that it was he started as a folktale and the more people that believed in the folktale the wider the gap between realities became to the point where he could come through and when he came through to this world he had eventually he had enough power especially during the height of the initial corruption from the waste there's enough people having nightmares about it. There's enough people talking about darker folktales like the Mirror Man that he could overtake the power of the lesser gods, the weaker ones. And by doing that, he took on their followers' oaths and became stronger. Much like the corruption, the idea of it eating away and expanding and expanding. And eventually... He'd taken on most of the deities, except those main three. For example, Shambles God, the twin-tailed fox. Shambles learned that the fox had two tails. One for chaos, one for order. This idea of it being either side of a coin. And he never learnt about the bad face, the negative face. Because actually, and he witnessed the Twin-Tailed Foxes, one of the deaths. It's a title. It's a title held and passed between successors by the god itself. It essentially chooses someone worthy to carry the title of the Twin-Tailed Fox. And when they die, it waits until a successor is born, made, recognised... And the spirit is passed to them. But the mirror man intercepted one of these. And the twin-tailed fox has been dead for about a hundred years. So Shambles' history, all that he read was, all that good side was before it died. And then all the negative stuff that's happened more recently and that he's learned about all these crimes that supposedly those of his religion have committed have been the second tale, it's been after death. Kind of BC, AD. And there was so much potential with the gods, and I don't... I don't blame the players for not following a lot of it, because, I mean, we had... We had a warlock, we had a sorcerer, then we had a, well we had two sorcerers and then we had a cleric the only one who'd really do much to do with the gods would actually be the cleric and sans religion was you know dolara sunlight god i mean dolara thankfully is a bit more of a belief system than an actual deity it turns out because otherwise she would definitely be dead Lamal surprise. And it's... I don't blame the players for not getting as invested in it as they could have, because, I mean, Donio is a bit of an asshole. 
So, and they didn't really... The paths they took didn't lead them to those plot points as much. And that happens. Sometimes you miss a plot thread. It's not the end of the world, but hey, it's a thing. The world happens. The world happens. Is that a sentence? No, that's not a sentence. Let me just delete my existence. But the Mirror Man would have been the fight in the end. And anyone who followed a deity, so if the others had multiclassed further into potential deities that may or may not have been taken over by the Mirror Man a long time ago, they would have been corruptible. They would have been able to be manipulated by the Mirror Man actively and subconsciously. So potentially they would have had to fight amongst themselves before they could fight Borer himself. One of the other plot points I was really excited to eventually get to, which was originally going to be revealed in Arc 3, but the king, Alaric, who's always been a puppet king. The phrase puppet king in this case is a lot more literal than some would believe, because... Borer is essentially a powerful necromancer. And when I say powerful, I mean like max level necromancer. He... He overtook Alaric's mind. Fully subjugated his will. About 40 years into his rule. And... Obviously, Alaric's body wasted away. And he is now a husk on a throne, literally puppeteered by the creature standing behind it. He is... He's dead. And he's been dead for a long time. But to anyone looking at him, and partly due to some magical hokey-pokey that has been cast on the city, anyone who comes into contact with it doesn't notice it. It's a bit like, for those of you who've watched Doctor Who, when the perception filters with the TARDIS keys that they use against the Master in, I think it's season two? No, it's season three. Season three of the modern Doctor Who. It forces everyone's gaze to kind of slide past what shouldn't be there. Which in this case is, you know, a literal skeletal husk on a throne. So people don't realise what's wrong. They can't realise what's wrong. And for characters like Dakota, even though Dakota never went to the throne room or anything, she grew up embedded in that magic. Because it's embedded into the city itself. It's runes in the walls and in the water supply and everything, so they would all be susceptible to it. Which would have led to some interesting conversations of trying to figure out... They'd be terrified and they'd be horrified, but they also wouldn't quite be able to explain it. Which is always an interesting horror trope I've loved, is being so afraid of something that you don't have the words, and every time you reach for them, they just slip away. It leaves you in kind of paranoia, which is always interesting to roleplay. But yeah, Alaric's been dead for ages. Half the gods have been absorbed. And... Let me think. Yeah, the party had essentially triggered Armageddon. At the end of Arc 1. Which I didn't expect. So at the end of the first story arc, the party went to the waste. They found the facility. They found the institute, the facility where the source of the waste magic is contained, and where Charlemagne experienced some hellish experimentation on himself, making him into who he is today. You know that's not horrifying at all. And they bumped into Dakota's father, Lord Argon who's been funding research to try and be able to transform teethlings to humans because he's a racist bastard. And 
Kalsuru, who was the scientist that experimented on Charlemagne, who is actually a revenant, which is a creature that comes back from the dead to exact vengeance. So he he died in the explosion and he's come back. And he's still roaming around being an asshole. But the party triggered self-destruct on the Institute with the source still contained within. If they'd if they'd opened the casing on the source, then the source could have cushioned a lot of the blow because the magic would have collided and some of it would have been absorbed, obviously. But because they didn't, they essentially... You know how in games, if you blow up one explosive barrel and it's close enough to like a whole pile of them, that you have like a few seconds before it fully all goes to hell. That's what that was. They blew up the facility and a few... It was probably only a few minutes between them, but the source absorbed that energy and then released it outwards. Chemical reaction. It happens. And it shattered the barrier that wizards had put in place. And that's, you know, horrifying. Because it's fueled entirely by death magic. The barrier was formed of... They killed thousands of people. Trapped them in the moment of their death. That moment of agony. Where their soul separated from their living form. And put them in a time loop. So they were constantly experiencing that. Because that was the height of the energy you could get from a living person. And they harnessed that to create the barrier. To stop hostile forces from coming in or out or from breaking it. But that explosion was stronger than the barrier. So the corruption has a massive hole to spread through. And it's been doing that. Over kind of the journey it took for the party to get through arc two it had spread a good fifth of the way along the continent and obviously it stopped it struggled to get anywhere near myrinth myrinth was mostly safe because the city has all these wards and magical influence that it can't really do anything but then you had Camp Elak, where Charlemagne was captured for a while. And we saw, if you listen to the flashback episode, the walk down memory lane, as it were, with Dakota and Shambles, you see what happens when Shambles short-circuited, like overloaded the fence that protected the entire place. Because overloading that triggered everyone's armbands. And, you know essentially killed the entire population of that camp guards and all which you know not horrifying at all they didn't all get suffocated by their own blood that's fine honestly Matt's face during that was commonly gold he looked horrified and I've never been more proud sorry Matt no I'm not but that was another case of corruption Source, explosion, chemical reaction. And the more and more places that they went, and this kept happening, the more and more people that got tainted but survived was spreading throughout the continent. And without the party's further intervention from this point, they probably had about 50 years before everything would be unlivable. Like, the water wouldn't be drinkable, the air wouldn't be breathable, people would be infertile. It would have been the last race of humanity. Well, not humanity, the last generation of that world. And when the food ran out and everything, everyone would die. It happens. If the party had kept going... And had, especially if they'd broken any of the wards set up by Vorer in the city. If they'd broken any of those during their time there, 
be that by killing a key person that the ward was linked to, which very much could have happened because some of the council members are inherently linked to the magical defences, or through, you know, kicking down the door to the throne room, throne room and setting the husk of Alaric on fire, which probably would have happened. They would have cut, like, they would have cut that to five years. And any further action on their part would have probably put it down to 12 months at max. So, I mean, it's kind of good we ended where they did, because otherwise they would have gotten literally everyone killed. Like, I have a little marker on my notes from this, just marking how many instances of corruption and how many degrees of separation is a term that people use to describe connections between people. So, for example, there's the whole a friend of a friend of a friend. That's three degrees of separation. Yeah, I think that's three. It was very much how many degrees of separation between infected people were there. And how many of the pillars holding up this society remained stable. And obviously once enough of them were done and destroyed, the end game would occur. And it's... I mean, it's good it ended. Because, you know, everyone would be dead and that's not horrifying at all. But, fun fact, by the end of the campaign, if we include... I mean, it doesn't really matter if we include... Charlemagne's rampage around a camp shouting about how he's Calreo in the third person. Party was responsible to about three and a half million people's deaths. So, you know. That's always fun. <laughs> but no, um, I'm excited for Bloodbound. I'm excited for my new campaign. It's focused around blood magic. And the idea that everyone in, everyone is inherently magical because it's infused in your DNA. It's part... For example, red blood cells have hemoglobin as part of that makeup. But in, in my world, you have, instead of hemoglobin, you also have your magical residue. So like a pint of sorcerer's blood, like if, you, if a sorcerer donated blood... You could take that and you could run a household, like all the household's appliances and things for about a week on a pint of blood. So there's a lot of potential stuff to play with here. And it's on a more secluded world, like there's no great oceans or anything. It is a disc, like Asgard from Norse mythology. It is a disc with waterfalls that fall off the edge into the void. And there's a barrier for the atmosphere. So it's a completely different style of world and it's going to be a different style of storytelling. Not in the... Like, like I will still do some party-specific stuff, but it's very much new place, new DM, new people. And we'll see how it goes. Hopefully, as of recording this, I should have everyone's characters in a few days, so we shall see. And I've got a few more world-building stuff to put in place, but I am excited. And I hope that this has kind of given you a little bit of an insight into how I work, how my brain works, why I make the decisions I do, and why Into the Waste, although a fucking great time, had to come to an end. And hopefully, hopefully, we'll have just as much fun with Bloodbound. And hey, if D&D isn't your thing, Blaze in the Dark. And I'm sure I can bully all the others into playing other things. <laughs> or maybe Vampire the Masquerade at some point. That'd be fun. But no. Thank you. I appreciate if you've listened all the way to the end on this. This is about an hour of me rambling to myself <laughs> and occasionally to cats. So. This has been Dyson Mutterings. Because I'm hilarious. Stay tuned. If you enjoy any of this, subscribe to the podcast on any social media platform. Not social media. 
subscribe on any any of your favourite podcasting platforms. We are everywhere. The benefit of technology, after all. And look after yourselves. Especially your mental health. It's a hell of a thing to deal with, but it is yours and it's precious. And I think we should remember that. Follow. Follow the site. Follow anyone. Follow the D&J gang. They're good friends and they deserve the world. Happy New Year, you dorks. <laughs> Why is that an outro? Thank you for listening to this episode of Dyson Suffering. If you enjoyed it, check out everyone involved in the description and find the rest of the episodes on all podcasting platforms or at themindgame.org. And may your dice rolls go well, though we all know they won't. <laughs>